Now, last week, last week we looked at what I called, was it for me, bro? No, it's not. Okay, sorry, I thought that was, I thought he was bringing me a drink of water. I was like, oh, wow, it's, it's not. My, my heart is hurt now. Okay. But last week, we looked at the great example Jesus gave us, not only in his serving of the disciples by washing their feet, but also in the demonstration of his relationship to his heavenly father, how he knew intimately the timetable of his father, how he knew intimately the authority of his father over his ministry and earthly existence, and that he knew intimately the sovereignty of his father, regardless of the circumstances that he faced. And I was looking to go more in depth for each of those things these next few weeks. And as I was reading, because I was going to go, oh, Lord, well, Lord, we'll look at the timetable you have for your people. And as I was reading Matthew chapter 24, which is one of the great things pointing to the Lord Jesus' return to reign on high, God struck my heart. And he, he caused me to pause at a few verses, which was really challenging. Challenging for me, and I, I think in the positive sense, too, challenging for each of us, because Jesus asks this question as he is approached by his disciples. He actually says, do you see all these things? Do you see all these things? Be to give a bit of context, Jesus in Matthew 23 has been pronouncing woes on the Pharisees and on the religious leaders of the day. He has been pronouncing woes on their hypocrisy, pronouncing woes on their religiosity, about them going through the motion, motions of, of serving God, pronouncing woes on their just false traditions that they place in the same position as God's word. And then we start this in verse 1 of chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We read this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Why did they do that? Think on this. Verse 2, Jesus says this. Do you see all these things, he asked. And then he says, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The reason why they ask such things is because in the last verse of chapter 23, we read these words from the Lord Jesus. Uh, verse 38 and 39, Jesus says, Look, your house is left to you desolate. He's talking about the temple here. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
That is the context of what our passage is today. And, and so let's pray and, and ask the Lord to open our eyes to the truths that are found within this passage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you, through the power of your Spirit, are working in Western Sydney. Thank you for Pastor Kevin and what is taking place in Rouse Hill, and I pray that you will anoint him and the church there as they shine as a light for you, the love of Jesus to those that are in need of such love. For us here at Castle Hill, I pray you will stir our hearts to see you. You'll stir our hearts now as we look at the Scriptures to hear what you have to say, that we might heed the promptings of your Spirit, that we might respond to the convictions that are placed upon us. And Father, that we will be changed for your glory. Please help me to share your word. Please help us to be attentive to what you are doing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, it is of interest that Jesus has been to the temple before. As a 12-year-old, he is about his father's business, speaking and conversing with the teachers of the law. As an adult, he overturns the tables and casts out the money changers and says to them, you have turned my father's house into a house of merchandise. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You have even at and other times when he, I think it's in Mark, when as he speaks, he speaks as one who has authority that causes people to stop and be in awe of the knowledge that he has, not of just the word of God, but of God himself. And so you have the disciples that bring the attention of Jesus to these buildings. Maybe they're trying to do like a, a spiritual flex. Maybe they're saying, look at the gate beautiful, which stands roughly 22 meters high and, and is 18 and a half meters wide and is covered in polished brass. Look at the beauty of that gate and the thing that we've put up as a testament to our worship of our great God. Maybe they were drawing the attention of Jesus to that. Maybe they were drawing the attention of Jesus to the holy place, which stood 52 and a half meters cubed, high, wide, deep. It was 52 and a half meters, a perfect cube. And said, look at that, that stands protruding over the city of Jerusalem that all can see where our God resides. Maybe they were saying, look at the, the courts where the, the people go, look at the, look at the furnishings, look at the wealth, look at what we are offering to our God as a place of worship, look at what we have built, because Herod basically extended upon the temple that Zerubbabel built. After Solomon's temple was destroyed and Zerubbabel rebuilt it, and Herod, as a testament to his legacy, said, let's extend. Let's make it look amazing. Let's make it look beautiful. And so the, maybe, maybe the disciples say, look at what we've made, Jesus. Look at what represents our worship of our God. This is a focal point for the, for the nation. This is their very essence as a people, that is identified by their relationship and their connection with their God. It is a place that Jew and Gentile alike knew 
was a house of worship, knew that it was the house of God. It was a sacred place. And maybe their eagerness to show, or sorry, to draw Jesus' attention to these buildings, maybe it was a flex in terms of look at what we've offered. Maybe that's one side of it. Maybe it's the other side of it when they could say, look at what the people have placed up there to worship you. Look at how shallow this is. Look at how weak this is. What a terrible manifestation of our love of God by trying to cover it over with things that look nice. Maybe they were trying to flex it in that way. I don't know. One represents one of spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance. The other represents that of spiritual superiority and spiritual judgment. Both represent spiritual self-righteousness. Both attitudes represent spiritual self-righteousness that can be had. And, and the reason why I say that is because don't we get like that as people? Don't we get like this as people? That we can fall prey to where we look at, say, the success of a ministry, where we look at uh, uh, the growth of a Bible study, where we look at the effectiveness of our music team, when we look at the, the eloquence of a preacher, or whatever it might be, we might sit there and say, look at what I have done. Look at what I can do. And then what we can do, specifically what I can do, is say, look at the great work that I am doing for God. Look at what I have built for him. J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, makes a wonderful observation, and I encourage everybody here and at home to read this book. It's called Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. And he says this, the ax never boasts on how many trees it cuts down. The ax never boasts on how many trees it cuts down. Why? Because the axe is but a tool in the hand of the woodcutter. That's what the axe is. And so when one reflects on such an attitude, we are confronted. When Jesus says this, he is regarding this beautiful building, all of these furnishes, all these furnishings. Jesus wants to stop the disciples, stop us and our tracks and say, do you see all of these things? Do you see the, the furnishings that are there that displays the wealth that does not go to the needy but lines the coffers of the religious leaders? Do you see this holy place which is, does not have the presence of God dwell within? Do you see this temple that is called the house of God in name only and God does not reside? Do you see these courts for the lepers and for the Gentiles where you reject the very people that are in need? Do you see all these things that you have built? Do you see all your traditions that you've placed on, on my on my level, do you see these things? And then Jesus says this, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one, everyone say every one. Every one will be thrown down. 
That's a prophetic word of what, or that speaks to the destruction, not, of the temp, not just of the temple, but of Jerusalem itself. That in AD 70 experienced that very destruction, the, the magnificence of the architecture, the majesty of the construction was laid waste. That which was the center of their identity, which was not God, it was the temple, was destroyed. That which they relied on was overthrown. That which they built with their own hands was conquered because the very place that was made to be an avenue through which people could meet with God had instead become God. That's what had taken place. That's why it was destroyed. And so what happens in that destruction? We are reminded of these. I know the the Hebrews in AD 70 were reminded of these realities, and we must be reminded of them too, that there is only one God. From the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none else, Isaiah 45, 6. There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me, Isaiah 45, 21. There is one God. And what's amazing about this one God is that he alone is deserving of all glory. He alone is deserving of glory. Isaiah 48, 11, for mine own sake, even for mine own sake will I do it. And how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory to another. There is only one God, and all glory belongs to him. If Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, 21, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God's, then I must be very careful in how I approach anything that I have and anything that I do in life, whether it be ministry, whether it be fellowship, whether it be my own Bible reading, whether it be the struggles that I face, whether it be the fellowship that I enjoy with each one of you. How I approach that, I have to be very careful of that I don't make that God in place of him. Because like the Pharisees and Sadducees, like the scribes and the magistrates of Jesus' day, I can take the good things, the good gifts, the great blessings that God has given me to lead me to him and instead make them God in his place. I can do that with a sermon. I can do that with a relationship. I can do that with a person. I can do that with an event. We have this tendency to take the good things of God and make them God. And I think, well, okay, so if that's so easy to do, how do I guard against it? I mean, how do, how do I ward? How do I protect? Because, you know what, my, I've shared this before, and I, 
Okay, the, the thing about me is that I am a self-centered, egotistical man. I really am. And, and what's, how, how do I guard against my own self-centered egoism? Well, the clue is given in verse 3. Okay? What can we do? What can I do to guard against a heart such as this? And this, this is the clue in verse 3. Have a listen. Well, have a watch. Have a read. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the very end of the age? Look at what they do. Two things stick out, and the third thing reveals a lot about me, and prayerfully might open your eyes to see something about you too. Firstly, they go to him privately. This, I think a lot of us forget how privileged we are to be able to talk with the Lord personally. I think many of us forget that in the busyness of life, when we're always going around, this morning I was watching people like, there was Mr. Aaron T, he's doing his coffees. Oh, coffee, 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 and doing an absolutely great job. I'm, I'm trying to deliver things and I'm walking past. I saw Gary and I saw, yeah, here's your coffees. And then I accidentally ignored Sister Ing Hong. Sorry, sister, she slapped me for that. But anyway, and so we're going around, but we get so busy, 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 and sometimes we just forget. Parents, you know this with your children. Grandparents, you know this with your grandkids. People who work, you know this with your jobs. There's one thing after the next thing after the next thing that sometimes you know, when it says in Psalm 46 to be still, we forget to be still. To be still and then just listen. Be still and then to talk. They go to Jesus privately. And in the privacy of such a moment, they speak with the Lord. And, and we forget this, we, we overlook this, we forget that he is a father who says to you and I, in the busyness of our lives, cast all your cares upon me. Why? Because I care for you. 1 Peter 5, 5. Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. A, a Lord who says to us, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. See, we, f we forget those invitations. We forget things how we, the Holy Spirit with whom we are sealed for the day of redemption, how we can now approach because of him the throne room of grace and what? Ask for help in time of need. We forget these beautiful truths, these beautiful promises that have been made available to us in Jesus. So they go to him privately. You want to know the first thing that you need to do? When you are just overwhelmed with life, when you are feeling the pressures of everything going around, when you feel like a failure as a husband, when you feel like you're letting down your wife, when you feel as a parent that you're, you're falling short, to sit there and go to Jesus privately. Go to Jesus privately and talk with him. Because here's what's really neat. The second thing they do when they go to him privately is that they ask him specifically. They ask him specifically. In this case, 
It was in relation to the timetable, uh, God's timetable regarding Jesus' return and the end of the age. It wasn't just some sort of generalized blanket request. See, what had happened was that when Jesus said what he did, it caused them to ask specifically what he said, what he imparted. And, and, and I mean, think about it. When Daniel was placed in the lion den, I'm pretty sure he prayed specifically for protection from the jaws of the lion. When Jonah was swallowed by the big fish, I mean, sorry, fish, as Australians say, I don't know. When Jonah was swallowed by the big fish, right, I'm pretty sure he prayed specifically that caused him to be spewed out on the shores of Nineveh. When Jesus prayed at his baptism, what happened? The Spirit of God descended upon him as the declaration of his father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. They prayed specifically to receive an answer specifically, to meet their need specifically. And I think for many of us, we just like to do our generalized blanket prayer and think, okay, Lord, you know what I need, etc., etc. Blah, 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 amen. Somebody said to me, I remember years ago, why do we ask of Jesus when he already knows what we need? Or when we need, or we want to ask for. Why do we have to ask for something specifically if he knows all our needs? For those of you who are parents, you know why. You know why. You're waiting for your kids. And I've done this with my kids. I do this with my kids now. When I know and I hear that my son or my daughter wants to go and do something, wants to go somewhere, and I'm waiting for them to acknowledge me and say, Dad, can you please take me? Dad, can I please have this? Dad, can I please go here? Or whatever it might be. It's not me being a bad dad at all. And it's not like they're fearful of me, I don't think. But I am allowing them, my love for them is say, if this is what they want, then they would humble themselves to come to me and ask, appealing to me on the basis of my love for them, and to say, Dad, can you please? And I was like, I already know. Of course I will. Of course I will. And I'll take them, or I'll give them, or I'll say no, if it's what I think is best for them. And so my God asks me. He knows what I need, but he also knows he wants me to come to him and to ask of him specifically because of his love for me, he'll give me an answer that is best for me too. So don't ever be afraid. Don't ever be afraid to talk with the Lord. Don't ever be afraid to go to him privately in the closet of your heart and go and speak with him. Don't ever be afraid to approach the throne room of grace because you have been granted access in Jesus Christ. Don't ever be afraid to go and ask. Why? Because whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door is open. And that's what we learn from the disciples here. Like I said, specific prayer resulting in specific answers as they prayed specifically in line with God's will and in line with God's heart. Now this, I think, is one of the best things that's here that I think the most important key for me, and I pray it might have some application to you as well, but one of the greatest lessons I learned for 
me against my own self-righteous ego, against my own self-reliance, and it's this, and it's this, get this, okay? It is to be in a state of perpetual need. In a state of perpetual need. Pastor Roger, years ago when he came to Easter camp, he put it this way, to be desperate for God. To be desperate for God. The disciples were, by Jesus' words, placed in a position of need. They were placed in a position of need. They didn't know what the end of the age held, Because as far as they were concerned, Jesus was there to reign as the Messiah. He was there to deliver them from Roman oppression. So they're like, hang on, I I, I don't understand. I don't know. And so in the state of need, that's why they go to him privately, because they didn't know. They didn't know about the end of the age, so they go to him and said, tell us, when? What will be the sign of your coming? What's going to be the end of the age? What will be the signs of your return? In that state of need, they go and ask Jesus and say, Jesus, can you please tell us? And you read through Matthew 24 and you say, you read about there'll be wars and rumors of wars, that there'll be famines, there'll be, there'll be false messiahs, there'll be people who come and deceive many. He says all of these signs before his coming. But before they got that answer, They were put in a place of need that forced them to go to Jesus privately. And this is one of the worst things I think we can pray. Lord, place me in a place of need. Why? Because that means he's going to place you somewhere that you are not going to like. We in the 21st century, I think we have gotten so used to being self-reliant that we have lost our desire for need. We don't think we need. Yes, we need Jesus to save us. We understand that. We understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that there is none righteous, no, not one. We know that we need Jesus, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, deserving of God's judgment. Yes, we know all that. We know that Jesus came to be born of a virgin, live, die, and rise again, and that through faith in him, we are given life, we are given forgiveness, we are given redemption. Yes, we know that, and we wholeheartedly commit to it, and we say, God, Please be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Make me a new creation. Write my name in the book of life. And he saves you. But you know what happens as we walk in our Christian journey? Well, look, we have so many. I look, and and I look, please don't take this the wrong way. I look around and I see so many successful people. And I praise God for so many successful people. I praise God that God has blessed you. You've worked hard and God has blessed you with financial resources. But because we have financial resources, we don't really need, do we? Because we have, I need to buy a new car, buy a car. Oh, I need some food, buy some food. Oh, need a friend, buy a friend. No, that's that's what I do. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Okay, but isn't that, isn't that, well, it's like, it's a need. It's a need. We, we, we don't see that need because we're not placed in a position of need, are we? Or, or, or we look around, we have our careers and our professions, and we think, I have my job security. I am not in a position 
of need. I have my health. I'm doing pretty well. I'm as strong as ever. I'm not in a position of need. My family's doing well. My wife is doing great. My kids are amazing. I am not in this position of need. And we take this position of need and thinking, because I don't need anything, all sweet in the world. Hence, we have this view of Jesus as being there for us only when, we, when things get tough. Only when things we encounter are difficult. Only when we put things that are beyond our financial resources, that are beyond our jobs, that are beyond our health. That's why it's such a hard thing to pray, because if we say, Lord, place me in a position of need, maybe you lose your job. Put me in a position of need, maybe you get sick. Put me in a position of need, maybe a tragedy takes place. You remember, remember, God doesn't give his glory to another. He doesn't give his glory to another. And if you're relying on your job, on your house, on your security, on this, that, and the other, instead of God himself, well, he doesn't give his glory to another. And there might be something that would cause you to be placed in need for him. As I said, we don't, because we often don't need, we move that mentality to our relationship with Jesus. And we see Jesus as a handyman to patch things up when things get difficult. No, he's not a handyman. He's not there for my convenience. He's not there for my comfort. He's there as my Lord, as my God, as my King, as my sovereign ruler. And what I do and what I have revolves around him, not the other way around. Not the other way around. So, if we, and, and this, is, this is the grace of God, which I think is absolutely amazing. The grace of God is such that he has given us avenues by which we can place ourselves in need for him. Jono talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he talked about Lent, and he talked about fasting. You know what that is? That's placing yourself in a position of need, of controlled need, of reliance upon him. In Mark 9.29, you know, when, when it came to casting out demons, this is the only sort that can be cast out through fasting and prayer. But it's a position of need. It's training yourself in a position of need so that when you are bound by your circumstance in need for God, you know how to respond in need. You know how to respond in reliance. You know how to respond in trust because you've trained yourself to be in need for him. Whether it be reading the scriptures, it's positioning yourself in a place of need because this, this is a spiritual book. And we need spiritual understanding by which we can understand the words within this book. It's a spiritual book. That's a position of need. It can be only opened by the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to see. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Prayer. Your prayer, your intercession, your supplication, your petition. That is positioning yourself in a place of need because you are, like the disciples, asking the Lord, tell me, tell me what you're doing. Tell me, work with me and open my eyes to see your hand. Tell me. Uh, Psalm 6, 9, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts 
my prayer. It's a position of need. Worship is a position of need. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 100. It's only four or five verses long. I love this. Worship is the acknowledgement of who He is, the magnificence of His cre- of of, of, his cre- of His of our Creator. Sorry, I was stuttering there, but this is what Psalm 100 says: "Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth! Worship the Lord with gladness! Come before Him with joyful songs! Know that the Lord is God." It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generation. Worship is exalting our God in his rightful place and being in awe of that. That is a position of need to think that this great God accepts my acknowledgement and is pleased with it in Christ. That is a place of need, of need for him. And then you've got all these other things as well, whether it be uh, fellowship and evangelism and, and, and ministry and service. There are so many avenues through which we are placed in a position of need for him. And you know what's amazing? He's given these for our benefit, for our enjoyment, for our growth, for our development. He didn't have to. He says, I want you to discover the greatness of my power in your life by you being in need for me. But you're not going to experience it if you're just sitting there. You're not going to experience it if you think you've got it all together. Because here's the thing, here's the thing. Uh, the fellowship and all these other things, These are blessings bestowed upon us by God in Christ, enabled by His Spirit to put us in need for Him. When I fellowship with you, my fellowship with you directs me to Jesus. When I worship with you, my worship with you directs me to Jesus. When I read the Bible, when I spend time in His Word and ask Him to show me, that time in the Word directs me to Jesus. Not the songs, not the Bible verses, not the prayers, not the proclamations, not the friends. All of those things are wonderful avenues through which Jesus points me to Him. That's what it is. Jesus who says, do you see all these things? All these things we hold on to thinking that's what we're going to be secure in. All these things that we look at and think that's what will make us happy. All these things that we're going to stand by and hold to because it makes us feel good about ourselves. No, 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 no. Jesus says, do you see all these things? All these things that are not of me, not one of them will be upon another. Why? Because it's supposed to be him I'm looking for. Him I'm seeking and him that I'm holding on to. That we might, as his people, respond to his words, to seek him privately, to ask him specifically, to be desperately in need for him and respond to him obediently. That when he prompts me, leads me, convicts me, he changes me. Do you see your perpetual need for Jesus. I pray that as we leave here today, 
we would not only see that need, we'd respond to it. And what's great is that he will join you in that journey in order for you to discover more of him. I was going to ask the team to come up and sing, but no. Let's pray. And in that moment of prayer, let's ask God. Let's ask the Lord Jesus to show us our perpetual need for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for us as your people. I pray first, Lord, for my own personal repentance, of my own self-reliance, of my own building, of my own temple, worshipping the wrong things, being entertained by things of the world rather than being consumed with yourself. And, and I ask for forgiveness of such things. I pray for each person here that you would stir within their hearts a hunger and a thirst for more of you, that you would raise within us that perpetual need for you, that we would be desperate for you, that with all of the various things that we're confronted with continually that causes us to rely on ourselves, that you will help us to become less so that you might become more. Father, we need you to do this. I pray that you will help us to seek you privately, that you will help us to ask specifically. I pray, Father, that you will just... Give us just a longing, a thirst, and a hunger for righteousness that is found in your Son. I pray, Father, that it will not be soon just disregarded or dismissed, but rather we will seek you with our whole heart. So I thank you for the promise that if we will seek you, that we will find you. I thank you that you invite us to yourself and that you desire to reason with us. I thank you that you have made us a new creation in your son. But I just pray, Father, for your help. We ask for you, Lord, to have your will done in this place, that you will have your will done in each of the lives here. And, Father, that we will be courageous enough and bold enough to trust in you regardless of what we face. So we ask for you to dismiss us now, Father, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.